Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're joined by Ryan Karana of the Institute for Advancing Prosperity and Young Voices and self-proclaimed horologist. Ryan is joining us today from Toronto, Canada, and we want to talk to you about a few things, but uh, particularly some of the pieces you've written lately in Real Clear uh, Public Affairs and the National Interest. But uh, I guess introduce us to the Institute for Advancing Prosperity and tell us a little bit about Young Voices. Sure, yeah. Thank you for having me on. Um, so the Institute for Advancing Prosperity is a small think tank I run in Canada. Uh, the main focus is on emerging technology policy. I, I started it because I had a lot of background in researching automation and its impacts, and I felt there needed to be more of a conversation about how technology doesn't need to just be incentivized from an innovation perspective, but really have a lens that sees it as something politically important and have large geopolitical impacts as well. And so that's been the main focus of my research and publications. Young Voices is a nice platform that helps uh, up-and-coming policy experts share their work for broader media. Uh, It arranges uh, media appearances such as this one and uh, helps edit and place my pieces in in larger publications such as National Interest, like you mentioned. And so it's a really great platform for people who have a lot to say to really get their voices out there. Well, and let's start there with the, the recent piece in National Interest. I, I don't want to sort of characterize it, but as I sort of read the, the piece, I, I sort of get the impression your, your argument is that the European Union is sort of stealing the march of the United States in uh, setting the standards for regulating social media and technology, and that you would propose something, a, a different approach than, than what the EU is doing. Tell us a little bit about the EU's approach and, and what the GDPR is. Yeah, so the, the main kind of idea there is that domestic decisions have ripple effects for global technology, like the internet is cross-border. So whichever country sets the strictest standards and has a large accessible market, essentially sets standards well beyond its borders. And the EU has taken a lot more initiative than the United States in in really defining what it expects those standards to be. When we look at the GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulations, um, it's something that came into effect uh, two years ago now. And it's one of the most far-reaching privacy regulations, which essentially prevents companies from using data in new ways that they didn't originally get your consent for without updating you constantly. Uh, it really restricts the ways data can be used and the decision that can be made by automated processes. Uh, and it puts a lot of compliance burdens on companies to make sure that their data infrastructure is built to EU specifications. Um, it's had a lot of impact globally, not only because it provided the clearest guidelines, so it's much easier for larger companies to comply with whatever is more clearly written, but also it set the tone for policy debates internationally. So California recently introduced its uh, consumer privacy regulation, and it's very much modeled on the GDPR. And in some areas, it even extends the the amount of uh, compliance burden that's placed on companies. But it really moved towards making this tone where the EU is the standard bearer for what internet companies have to do and how data collection has to work. Um, 
In that same vein, however, the United States has not taken as much of a an active update to its privacy regulations. It has sector-specific regulations like like HIPAA for healthcare, um, but a lot of the stuff is done at the state level, and the states with the most initiative tend to be the ones like California that that have a far more draconian view of regulation. So I guess give us your perspective on GDPR. Is this the type of approach that you think the United States should be taking, or what would be an alternative to this type of approach? So the, the main impetus was saying that, like, we need to think of something uh, different. And um, the it, it's kind of sad that the EU has taken this initiative and a lot of American policymakers seem to take it as a standard. One of the reasons why I have a big issue with uh, GDPR is it slows down the incentives to create new um, kind of uses of the data that's already existing. Now, a lot of the the data get, that gets collected, let's say you're on Facebook and it's producing this data, you don't really understand what the hidden value is. And a lot of the new technologies coming out, like artificial intelligence, are really based on looking at vast amounts of data and coming up with new ideas from them and finding new ways to extract value and provide more um, returns for customers. By having such a stringent kind of compliance burden that prevents you from experimenting in these ways and and learning about the the new automated uh, processes that can come out of it, what you're doing is kind of restricting which companies are really able to experiment on this vein. So smaller companies that cannot afford those compliance costs really have to give you only directly the product that they offered up front. And they can't really use the data that they generate to experiment with developing new products. Whereas a larger company like Google or Facebook, which has the money to comply and which can... Uh, has its army of lawyers to get around the the compliance costs that are placed on it can can still experiment with that data and that really respect uh, restricts who's allowed to innovate um, when it comes to software technologies one of the major things is the scalability of insights generated from large amounts of data and when you restrict wh- who is allowed to use data and how it's allowed to be processed you're really cramping down on the new and innovative um, results that could come out. And these, these innovative technologies affect pretty much every sector. So um, when Google uses its search data to train language translation apps, uh, its translation capabilities affect far beyond just you using Google Translate. Like people do business by translating um, using that platform. And that allows a lot more cross-border flows to occur, and when you're restricting who's allowed to invest in those technologies and who's allowed to experiment with those techniques, you're preventing that competition from enabling the the benefits of that from being widespread and a lot, and really slowing down the generation of these new technologies. So, what would you propose then to balance any concerns about consumer privacy, the privacy of their in their data? versus fostering innovation? How, how, you know, is there an approach that you think properly strikes that balance? So currently, I've looked at a lot of um, what, uh, what I would call piecemeal approaches that have different perspectives on specific things. Um, and I think there's a lot of work to be done in developing a far more overarching kind of cohesive plan. But certain ones that I really like, there's an approach by the um, ITIF, the Information Technology and uh, Information Foundation. And what they were talking is you really have to separate types of data. You have to separate what's considered 
very uh, sensitive data from non-sensitive data, and you have to change from impactful applications to non-impactful applications. And you should have a gradient of stringency. So for data that's not sensitive to people, um, such as your email address, let's say, you have a far more lax kind of compliance standard, whereas data that's really sensitive, such as any kind of financial data whatsoever, you, you attach a far more stringent standard. And then you also have to look at what these uh, companies are looking to do with it. So right now, while there's a, a general blanket of you have to get constant reassured consent from, from users on how you're using their data, when it comes to certain applications, let's say just wanting to slightly improve the UX of your website, that shouldn't be considered something that you need the most extreme compliance with. But if you're trying to launch a product that has uh, implications for how consumers do business. So for example, like if you're using this data to change how you're making insurance decisions, now that's a far more um, complex and important decision to make. And so stringent standards there would make sense. So these approaches kind of look at two sides. They look at the importance of the data being used and the impact of the application that it's being used in. I consider that far more um, nuanced and far more open than I would a blanket claim that you know we need the most strict data privacy on all types of data, regardless of how it's being used and for what purpose. What do you think of ideas of an ownership right in your data or this idea of uh, the right to be forgotten? Do you think that those are actually helpful or are those so cumbersome that they would inhibit innovation and inhibit the, the free flow that, that the internet relies on? Yeah, maybe explain what the right to be forgotten is. Sure, yeah. So the right to be forgotten um, is basically something that says that if you have um, a news story about you, let's say, and it's indexed by a search engine and so it appears on the front page, uh, you have a right to ask that search engine to strike that uh, article off so that it's non-discoverable from the search engine. Now, you can't remove it from the internet, but essentially, by making it non-indexable to search engines, no one who's just looking up about you can find that information. Now, the right to be forgotten creates all sorts of uh, interesting incentives. Uh, you have to ask who's going to be exercising this right and what are the costs for the search engine to really exert some pressure saying, no, no, this is important information and we're going to keep it. And so the relevancy becomes kind of complicated there and we have all sorts of stories of you know the types of people that want information forgotten about them will typically be like you have uh, some kind of scandal in your past and you want that um, gotten rid of um, from from easy access and so I'm not particularly uh, sold on the idea that we need a direct right to be forgotten from search engines I feel more information is usually better uh, and it, you have to ask that question about in which cases and who's going to benefit the most from this right and who's going to bear the costs. And the benefits of this typically would not end up on people um, who are like average Joes who have some information about them online, but mostly people who want to uh, get rid of information that may in some way be pertinent for people evaluating their history or making a decision about them. Uh, and I think that that's hiding that information is probably not the best thing to do because one of the virtues of, of the internet is making information accessible and allowing people to use better information in their decision making.
When it comes to the other part of what you asked though, with data uh, ownership rights, now I'm a, a, a big proponent of uh, a mechanism proposed by economist Glenn Weil, uh, in which it's called data as labor. And I've done some work on kind of policy designs on this. I didn't bring that up in my initial kind of posing the privacy framework, just because it's still in its uh, ideation stage. It's far more of a of um, an economic theory than it is a full policy program. But the essential idea is that rather than treating data as something to be owned as like a property right, we treat data as a product of labor. That when you're, um, let's say, interacting with Facebook and it gets some data about your likes and dislikes based on your interactions, this is a two-way process. Facebook built the infrastructure to allow that data to be created, but you actively created that data on Facebook. It doesn't actually exist outside of Facebook because it exists due to the interactions with that platform, but you still created it. And so rather than treating it as some kind of fixed property right, you treat it as the act of labor itself. Uh, and so when you do that, you have a, a very different mechanism on how we can uh, enforce rights over data or collect the value out of data. And it would be a lot, a lot more dynamic. So one of the proposals is this idea that called the mediator of individual data, which are intermediary organizations, um, somewhat simpler, uh, similar to what exists for music licensee right uh, in copyright. So what you would have is you have your data that you've produced and you license your, your, your right of production to this intermediary who aggregates a lot of people's data and bargains with the final companies that use that data uh, on your behalf. That means that because it would be a competitive landscape, each of these mediators would be able to set different standards and, and respond to the users that sign up to them's needs. But because they have bargaining power as well, they can negotiate prices for these data, uh, like these data rights, and in doing so, return some of that value back to users. Um, I think that that's a really great idea because it, instead of uh, what you were saying earlier about how these kinds of costs would inhibit market activity, I feel by creating these layers of competition, you're making the prices associated with data more transparent and the conditions of use more transparent. And by doing so, you're allowing a far more active market in data to be created where it's very explicit how much everything costs and what are the conditions of use. So a, a moment ago, you mentioned Facebook and uh, Elizabeth Warren, who at least until a few weeks ago, uh, seemed to be a uh, one of the main presidential contenders. It seems like that may be a little bit uh, up in the air now. But she made some more headlines by, uh, by coming out and saying that uh, – People like Zuckerberg, you know, the executives running these social media companies like Facebook, that they should be facing criminal charges if they are publishing um, any any if they publish on their platform any political content that they know to be false. And this seems to be, you know, sort of undermining uh, Section Two Thirty. And it's it's not just the left that is sort of undermining um, the the way the the internet's been structured with this sort of exemption under Section two thirty for uh, things that are published by third parties, but also you see critiques of this approach um, on the right from people like Senator Hawley. Walk us through that a little bit in terms of uh, you know what's the rationale. Um, of Elizabeth Warren or other critics of 
of, of Section 230 and the Internet and social media from both the right and left. And do you, do you buy this perspective that we need more regulation? And even to the extent, do we need to criminalize the uh, failure to re- regulate the Internet, or re- failure to censor uh, false or inflammatory statements on the Internet? Yeah, so this is, this goes back to the, that claim about the U.S. needing an alternative approach to Europe. And I think one of the virtues of the early American approach to the Internet was things like Section 230, which essentially said that platforms are kind of neutral arbiters and they're not responsible for the content that's posted by their users. They're responsible for creating that um, environment in which those users operate. And by removing that direct liability for what their users do, you allowed them to not be over-concerned with each individual post because these are huge, massive sites. They host tons of content and the compliance burden of focusing on every single thing that occurs is gigantic. Now, that's not to say that platforms aren't concerned with the content posted on them already, right? Each platform wants to cultivate a certain environment and brand. They allow different levels of, of um, let's say, vulgar content or, or violent content or sexual content, depending on who they believe their user base is and what that user base would be comfortable in seeing. And so they cultivate specific environments to attract people. Now, there are violations of their own codes on those sites because the problem of moderating content is extremely complex. It's very hard to automate the entire procedure of detecting content that violates your your, uh, policies just because so much content is uploaded all the time. And the way that people violate policies may not be completely obvious the second it's posted. Now, a lot of companies like Facebook want to talk about um, investing in AI to detect this. Uh, And while I I believe there's a lot of promise to that technology, it's nowhere near advanced enough to detect everything. Um, It's pretty good if the thing that is violating their policies is extremely transparent. So, for example, if you use copyrighted music and it's a large sting of that music, it's pretty easy to tell what that is. If content is extremely violent, people tend to flag it and then they can have a manual review and that'll pull it off. But when it comes to things like false content, it's much harder to transparently realize that something's false, especially from an edit, um, like an automated decision system, because that's comparing not something uh, that's posted to something pre-existing. It's having this understanding of what truth is and how the world's operating and comparing information and discerning what's true among it. That's a really, really complicated task to do. And I feel like forcing people to comply with that would create this anxiety among companies about what content is allowed online. And in reality, we already kind of see this happening with certain sites. You have um, a chilling effect occur where any content that has even the slightest inclination of violating that policy would be removed. And you would put all types of like, so for example, Facebook puts all political speech under review uh, by the person posting it before uh, you're allowed to show a campaign ad or something like that because there's this anxiety about what would happen if we let people freely do that. Elizabeth Warren's proposal specifically, and even uh, proposals by people like Josh Hawley, want to go further than the anxiety that already exists and regulate these companies more directly. My issue with that is not as much that you know we shouldn't do something about what content is hosted, 
but that this is an extremely complicated task to do. And it's very hard for a regulator to know when a company is operating correctly, uh, when it has knowledge of what is being posted to be false. And so the litigation to enforce this regulation would be huge. It would be very, very difficult for any um, regulator to truly understand whether something slipped through the cracks or whether they knowingly allowed it online. And so a company with a large budget like Facebook or Google has a much easier time trying to defend itself than a smaller upstart competitor who may not let, uh, who may have content slip through the cracks, who may not not uh, have that knowledge, and it may not be able to afford those monitoring costs for everything posted. And that seems to be me to be quite anti-competitive. It doesn't really allow these companies to iterate and try and fail and discover better processes on their own. And so, yeah, the, the, the overarching theme of this is essentially that one of the virtues of the American approach thus far has been it's given companies the benefit of the doubt. But by removing that benefit of the doubt, you really do not know what the best approach is to moderate this content. And you're going to force them to use something that's more draconian in order to, uh, you know, not fall afoul of the law. Uh, what is horology? <laughs> uh, horology is the study of watchmaking. And so I really, I'm, I'm a big fan of mechanical watches. And I, I used to take a lot of classes on how to build okay. them and, and repair them. And it's more understanding also how, how the different finishes on watches are made. Okay, I, I understand that, you know, it's not really relevant to what we were just talking about, but Greg said that when he introduced you and it's been like in the festering in the back of my mind this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a line from one of the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and I forget which one, but it's one I saw my sons were watching the other day. And uh, a young lady d- describes herself as a horologist and some of the pirates on the ship look at her and say, my mother was too. Um, so anyway, let's let's talk about a different type of entrepreneurship other than, well, that. Um, so you just wrote in uh, Real Clear Public Affairs um, an article called The Return of the American Entrepreneur. Um, tell us what, you know, what you, in, in preparing that, tell us what you found out about sort of the the, uh, the trends in American entrepreneurship um, are, you know, is it in growth or is it in decline? And I, I wanted you to add to that since you're calling in from Toronto, how does that compare to what, what you're seeing in terms of the startup scene in Canada? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the, the motivators for that piece was there was a um, study about the kind of declining dynamism in the United States recently. Um, where while it's picking up a little bit, you had uh, the overall amount of new firms decline relative to the amount of firms that were closing. And I had come across um, a lot of research recently that basically focused on how there was a paradigm in innovation policy that assumed that what you should focus on is rewarding successful entrepreneurs, and that would encourage innovation. And that meant that, you know, we have to tolerate um, giving tax breaks to wealthier people because you one day as an entrepreneur aspire to be wealthy. And so if you see that return come, you're going to be more motivated to pursue uh, a startup company. Now, uh, the research I'd come across, however, suggested that this was a very uh, naive approach. And what was really important for entrepreneurs is this 
lowering of risk at the initial stages. And, and the argument was essentially that, you know, when you're getting started out, the amount of profit you'll make at the end is so distant from what you're actually doing that little concerns such as uh, the taxation on that earning is probably one of the last things you're really going to care about. What you really care about is can you find a market for your product? Is your team rightly suited towards building the product that will fit that market? Can you actually develop the capacities to price that product effectively and capture some of that market share? Now, all of these really early concerns exist in a, in a realm of complete uncertainty because it's very hard to, to know whether all of those pieces are there and there's so much that has to fit together. And so what I was arguing is that a lot of the focus needs to be on this early stage support. And the early stage support can come from different ways to really lessen the anxiety about the costs of setting up a company, uh, making it much easier to access uh, the tools to start one. So for example, a lot of uh, innovation comes from the commercialization of research and making it easier to access publicly funded research allowing universities to collaborate with companies more directly, making it easier to start a company while at university and spin it out of the research you do. All of these would really help people not be as anxious about starting a company and would increase the rates of entrepreneurship. Um, when it comes to the United States, you see hubs of this happening right now. Like Boston is notorious for allowing this for, to happen because of its high quality universities and they, the support those universities give to students in starting their companies. Obviously, we have uh, in California places like Stanford, which are uh, so well known for their support to commercializing the research that's done. And I was saying that essentially what we need to do is enable universities to take more of an active role and, uh, and encourage you know, public sector actors to be able to be willing to, to, to finance more moonshot innovations, to bear some of the risk on behalf of entrepreneurs and allow them on, to focus on building that right product. Um, you asked about Canada. So we have some of these initiatives up in Canada as well. And one of my uh, favorite ones is one called the Creative Destruction Lab. Uh, now, that's a, a startup accelerator out of the University of Toronto. And it was founded by uh, a few economists who wrote this book called Prediction Machines, in which they, which is uh, uh, widely uh, regarded as one of the, the best books on the business of artificial intelligence. And their, their notion was essentially that you need to cultivate an ecosystem for entrepreneurs. You, now, you need to allow these people to focus on building their product as well as possible and give them the supports that they'll be introduced to people who can finance it. The little things like marketing and operations that are really important, but which probably detract on refining the product, you allow other people to come in and help them. And so one of the programs that they do at the CDL is these entrepreneurs come in with their, their deep science ideas that are in early, early stages, and they pair them with MBA students who provide them with that kind of marketing advice and guidance to really help them scale their startup. And this kind of ecosystem focus is something that's radically different than a purely financial focus. Um, it's something that spontaneously appeared in places like Boston and Stanford, but it's something that you can take active uh, initiative to grow in other places. Uh, and so the CDL in Toronto actually has recently started um, coming up with campuses. So they've expanded uh, to, to the United Kingdom and to France and, and really trying to bring that model of ecosystem building to other places. And in the United States, where you 
have these pockets of it, it would be great to bring those across the country to other places, allowing different um, localities with local specialties to have that provision for entrepreneurs saying, you know this stuff, you have the talent, we're going to help you bear some of that early setup cost of entrepreneurship so you don't have an anxiety about going into business. Yeah, I have a question about that because, uh, you know, there's, that's one of the big critiques is if you look at where these hubs are concentrated, you know, they, they, you know you've, you've mentioned Boston, there's the Silicon Valley. We like to think that Austin is a, a big tech hub. But then if you actually look at the VC dollars that go into Austin versus Boston and San Francisco, it's, it's just a small fraction. But but yet Austin is, you know, one of the, the leading tech hubs here in Texas, and Texas is doing so much better than so many other states in, say, the Midwest. If you had, you know, let's say you were a, a mayor of some small, struggling, midsize city in the Rust Belt and, you know, in the Midwest, what would be your advice or what would you what would be your plan of action to try to create something like a tech hub um, in some of these sort of forgotten places? I think so. Uh, as I was saying about looking at your local specialties, now one of the the virtues of of, of Austin is that you don't have to pay eighty percent of your monthly income on rent like you do in San Francisco, and then uh, that that really helps people like feel that you know I some of that financial burden early on is lifted from them, and it's not just a you know a target in the future. It's really like I can afford to do this right now. And then when those people get attracted to the same place, innovation spawns because they're mingling with each other and it's built this, this culture around them. And so when you're looking at different Rust Belt towns, you have to look at what their historical uh, specialties were. And so there's a lot of um, research done on urban renewal, which is you, you make a transition based on capabilities you already have. And so in places, so for example, in like um, Detroit, I know, there have been investments in uh, robotics. And one of the reasons why is, you know, that historically they had a lot of car manufacturing going on. And car manufacturing has tons of industrial robotics as part of it. And these people knew how to build and maintain those kinds of, of uh, machinery. And so if the machinery, its specifics may change, its applications may change, but that machining knowledge is something that's still something that exists in that town. And so to, for a place like Detroit, if they really championed that a lot more and made it an attractive place for people doing robotics work to come, you could really scale that up because that local climate is suited towards that thing. And so I would say that the best advice I would give to, to struggling cities is to focus on what your historical specialty is and see how that maps to existing needs in the market and pick something specific. Um, usually we talk a lot about, you know, being a tech hub as being something that allows all tech to prosper. But really, if you focus on a single technology right now, um, that is a, a really good early stage attraction. Now, relying on that forever is not the best idea. We'll, we can see that with uh, Detroit already, right? Because allowing for automobile manufacturing may lead to a lot of prosperity for a period of time. But if that manufacturing moves away, you've lost an entire industry. But getting that industry in to begin with means now you have the capital, now you have the time, now you have the talent and resources to focus on diversification. But I would say that early on when you're trying to rebuild something, focus on a specific specialty you have 
and try to attract people that are interested in the skills that your local population have already developed because of that specific uh, local specialty. Great. Well, we've got one sort of final question for you. Um, you know, we mentioned that you were um, in Toronto and or Toronto, and uh, I'm sure that most of our audience members are going to be uh, here in the United States. What would be um, if you were talking to a, a, an American audience? What What do you think that Americans would find the most surprising about living in Canada or uh, in, in Toronto in particular? One of the the really great virtues of uh, Canada, I would say, is its high focus on you know supporting high quality research. Now, one of the things I, I discovered recently was that American universities have far far fewer students than uh, Canadian universities. Like each campus of ours is is extremely large, and so bringing in so many people and really bringing them into like these dense areas. Canada may be huge, but everyone kind of lives in the same places no matter where they are. And so Toronto is a fairly dense city and really bringing all these people together and like you gain that effect of people mingling and you gain that effect of diverse uh, backgrounds mingling. And that allows for a lot of uh, new ideas to be shared. It allows for a lot more of a cultural acceptance as well. And, and it enables um, research to flourish because we have a lot of interdisciplinary work thriving in Toronto. And I, I, I find that one of the greatest virtues of, of a place like Canada, where you have, even though we have these vast amounts of land, people tend to live in similar places and they tend to live very densely. And that dense, uh, these dense cities really enable a lot of, uh, of prosperity to flourish because people interact with each other a lot more. And I think when people interact with each other, more often, you get more ideas sharing and blossoming. And I think that I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Toronto is what the third or fourth largest city in North America. Yeah, it recently overtook Chicago in size, I believe. Okay, okay. Uh, I think that that would also, I guess, Mexico City would probably be the largest, but then uh, yes. <laughs> New York and L.A. and Toronto, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, no, that sounds about right. All right. Well, uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urbane Cowboys.